Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. There's no doubt that the pandemic is making us more and more reliant on technology. This interview, for example, is taking place on Zencaster, one of the internet's most reliable audio recording platforms. For some people, like uh, William Powers, who we talked to last week, and, and Nick Carr, our increasing reliance on technology isn't necessarily a good thing. It isn't perhaps even compatible with technology. But a lot of people disagree. A lot of people see contemporary technology and digital as actually empowering and enriching our humanity. Rana El Kaliubi is a, a Boston-based uh, technologist, academic. She is the CEO of Affectiva, which is a, a, an AI company. And she's the author of a really interesting new book called Girl Decoded, A Scientist's Quest to Reclaim Humanity by Bringing Emotional Intelligence to Technology. Uh, Rana, uh, are you more or less dependent on tech during the pandemic? Are you spending your life on platforms like Zencaster and Zoom? Absolutely. Um, I work online. I learn online. I communicate online. Yep. Absolutely. And how is that, to, 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 to throw some words back at you from the subtitle of your book, um, how is that impacting on your own emotional intelligence? I think it's hard. I think it is hard to um, exercise and express your emotions and tap into other people's emotional and mental states when you are communicating online. Um, and so I'm very fortunate for platforms like Zencaster and Zoom, where we can at least stay in touch and be connected. But there is a lot of work to be done to make these platforms compatible with how humans communicate. They're not. The narrative of your life, uh, as, you, uh, as, as you articulate, as you write in Girl Decoded, is a kind of cultural and perhaps um, existential uh, liberation. You go, uh, you, you tell the story of, of, of your personal life and your professional life, going from a fairly conservative uh, family growing up in, in Egypt and then in Kuwait to, to doing your PhD in Cambridge, UK, and then becoming an entrepreneur in Cambridge, Massachusetts. How central has technology been in that personal liberation? Absolutely central. So um, I talk about this in the book. My, my parents met at a programming class in the 70s. My dad taught COBOL programming, and my mom was one of the very first females to kind of have an interest in, in, in programming. So she attended the class, and they ended up getting married. Um, so, and, and throughout my childhood, I, and, and this is what got me interested in computer science in the first place, I realized that technology 
changes the way we connect and communicate as people, right? Even, you know, as a, as a kid, when my dad brought the very first Atari video gaming console, it wasn't about the game. It was about how the game brought us together as a family. So I've always been intrigued by that. And then, of course, you know, I had this aha moment when I um, kind of moved from Egypt where my family was based and I, I, I started studying at Cambridge University and I, I was alone and, and lonely, alone and lonely, which a lot of us have this feeling right now. And I just realized I was spending more time on my device than I did with any other human being. Yet this device was oblivious to how I was feeling. And it was the main conduit of communication with my family back home. But I felt like all of the richness, you know, I'm a very expressive human being. I have a lot of facial expressions and vocal intonations and gestures and like, right. And I just felt like all of these rich nuances were kind of lost in cyberspace. So that got me on this path of bringing emotional intelligence back into our, well, not back, but bringing emotional intelligence into our technology and into our devices. I like the title of your book, Girl Decoded. Is it a kind of, do you think of it as a kind of confession, an uncovering of yourself? 100%. Uh, as I started writing this book, I realized, you know, initially the book was, was about emotional intelligence in technology and the applications and how do you build it and the ethical and moral implications. But as I started writing the book, I realized that my path to bringing emotional intelligence into technology kind of made me realize that I haven't always been embracing of my own emotions. Um, and so it's absolutely been a journey of decoding my own self and my own emotions. Part of the narrative in uh, Girl Decoded is uh, a, a very frank uh, telling of uh, your marriage and its breakup with uh, YL. Mm -hmm. um, how painful w was that to write? It was pretty painful. So, you know, I, 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 um, I wasn't allowed to date through high school and college. And so when I graduated at 19 from university, I, I met Well and we fell in love and he was my, um, you know, my first date, but he was also my best friend and we were super close and my biggest advocate. Right. And, you know, and then I went to Cambridge and had this long distance relationship through technology, which you know, it doesn't really work. It's kind of tough. And, and then I, and then I had the opportunity to join MIT as a postdoc and then of course spin out the company. And just throughout all of that, I think I took this marriage for granted and I just assumed it will always be there. And I just focused on my career and, and my kids. And, and then of course it all fell apart, but Divorce isn't really culturally accepted in Egypt the way it is, say, in the United States. And so my parents and his parents basically said, they sent us back. They were like, nope, you're not getting divorced. Go figure this out. And so we spent a good couple of years trying to figure it out. And and as I wrote this, I kind of had to reconcile my parents' love and support for me, but at the same time, they're kind of not wanting this marriage to end. And, um, you know, fast, it's been seven years. I'm on really good terms with, with Whale. He's, he's still based in Egypt and we're in the U S and, uh, my parents are super supportive and, and, and loving of me, which I'm very grateful for, but it definitely, I had to work through a lot of guilt and a lot of cultural tensions 
yeah. And of course, the the irony of that is while your personal life was falling to pieces, while you your marriage was unraveling, while your relations with both your parents and your parents-in-law, who I know you were very close to, was in crisis, you were developing your professional career in terms of building a database of human emotions. So there was a kind of irony. On the one hand, you were aggregating human emotions, perhaps other people's human emotions, and at the same time, your emotions were in crisis. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the even larger irony is as I was so focused on building emotional, artificial emotional intelligence and teaching computers and you know, building all these algorithms to detect our facial expressions and whatnot, I totally missed that my marriage was broke, breaking down. So in, in retrospect, it was obvious that the marriage wasn't going well, but I missed all of the nonverbal cues, I guess, that my husband at the time was was communicating. Um yeah, and, and I was not attuned to how I was feeling. I guess I had pushed all that aside and just powered through with, with building the company. And Yeah, I think one of the most m- m- memorable moments in the book, it's probably quite painful for you, is uh, you you confessed that at one point you were sitting with Wael and uh, you hadn't seen him for a while and it suddenly occurred to you that you hadn't had any sexual relations with him for three years, which in terms of a marriage is is, is pretty brutal. But what struck me was this hadn't occurred to you before. Exactly, exactly. And, and of course, he's, you know, his response was like, I, wanna, I, I want out. And I was devastated because I didn't see it coming, which, of course, in retrospect, was so obvious. All of the nonverbals or the lack of, you know, the lack of, of, of any intimacy whatsoever was supposed to be a super red flag. But here I was kind of you know, teaching machines how to be empathetic and how to look out for all these signals, and I totally missed it in, in my marriage. Yeah, it must be. Uh, it, it must be a, a, a. It must have been a weird process to to write this book, which was so revealing and in in, in some ways uh, self critical, and at the same time be experiencing such professional success. Your TED talk, for example, a few years ago has had several million views, uh, Activa is doing, uh, Affectiva is doing really well, and yet your own personal life was in crisis. Yeah, so so all of this happened um, while the, the company and my career was, was taking off. Um, maybe actually not totally uncorrelated. Um, I have a deep conviction that artificial emotional intelligence will help people across a variety of industries and, and and each of us individually. And so as my kind of personal life was falling apart, I just put all of my drive and passion to um, evangelizing Emotion AI and getting it out. And, you know, I'm a big believer that where you spend your energy, you see results. And I, you know, and I, I think it was a it still is, you know, fortunately, a, a, a time where the technology is very relevant. There's a lot to do. And I just keep forging ahead. You write in the book a little bit about the way in which men and women have different emotional kinds of intelligence. But in a kind of funny way, you fall more into the the male gendered stereotype of the individual who puts all their eggs in their career basket and completely uh, forgets about the emotional side of things. It's particularly ironic given that you're from a, a, um, 
a fairly traditional society in Egypt. And indeed, uh, even your relations with, with, with your ex-husband were in some ways quite traditional. Yeah, I think the way I would characterize it, because I do I do value emotions, I think the way I would characterize it is just br- the way I was brought up, I could, I, I, I kind of just did not incorporate, did not embrace my emotions, not to myself and not to others, right? And I guess I had squandered any negative emotions and just focused on on being pragmatic. Now, you know, having having spent the last three years thinking about all of this and kind of articulating it for the book, I think that was totally wrong. I think there is power in embracing one's emotions. Um, I think this kind of vulnerability and authenticity, both kind of in your professional and your personal life, um, creates a lot of trust and creates a lot of human connection. Um, and so now, you know, I'm very vocal that my leadership style is I lead with empathy first. I'm very vocal and vulnerable about, you know, my personal story. And I, and I think that, you know, I've had a lot of people reach out and say, oh, you know, that's happened to me or something similar, you know, this resonated with me. People I would have totally unexpected to open up in this way. And, and it creates this special connection. Um, so I've almost come, you know, full circle on this um, in terms of why it's important to embrace your own emotions. Your, uh, your product at Affectiva, as, as I suggested earlier, is building um, a, a visual database of, of human emotions, of intentionality. Uh, we are doing this, we're having this conversation virtually. Uh, we can't see each other. It seems to be a, a reasonably decent conversation. I'm asking you some very personal questions and you're answering them. How much better do you think this conversation would be if we could be watching each other? Oh, it would be a lot better. So only 10% of how people in general communicate is in the choice of words we use. 90% is nonverbal. And it kind of splits, splits equally between your facial expressions, your hand and head gestures, and your vocal intonations. Um, and the more of those you have available, the more accurate of a picture you have of the other's emotional and mental state. And then you can adapt to it in an intelligent way. Um, I'm actually less concerned about the two of us having this conversation because it's because there's only two of us. But imagine, you know, if you are on a webinar or a virtual conference, which of course we're now, or, or a meeting, right? You're presenting to your staff all over the world, um, and you have no idea how your message is resonating. And I find I've been doing a lot of these over the past few weeks, and I just find them really unsettling. It's the same for an online learning environment where, you know, a teacher, whether synchronously or asynchronously, is connecting with his or her students. And once again, like an awesome teacher in a classroom would just riff off the energy of the class and adapt in real time to personalize the experience and call on the kids who are confused or, you know, engage kids who are interested. Do you know what I mean? And you cannot create this type of shared experience digitally at the moment, Um and that's where I think this kind of technology has a lot of potential because it can quantify this in a way um, that's that we don't have right now. And I, and I keep imagining like a moment by moment readout of the audience's level of engagement or laughter or confusion, whatever it is. I think that would be really powerful. Some people will be listening to this and I think... Um 
concluding that the idea of quantifying people's emotion through their facial or physical gestures is not only really creepy, but it's an invasion of, of their privacy. How do you respond to that critique, given that you're in the business of this quantification? I, first of all, want to acknowledge that absolutely, this data is so personal. It's almost like as personal as it gets, right? So my position is that, first of all, we totally respect consent and opt-in. There's nothing we've done, you know, in the past 20 years of, of my being in this space where it has not been based on explicit opt-in and in plain English, like, you know, we've got all the legalese, but we also just summarize it in plain English. This is what's going to happen. The camera's going to turn on. This is the type of data we collect. This is, this is who, ha- you know, this is who has access to the data, et cetera. I think it's really important that we're transparent um, that way around data privacy. Um, but I also think it's about how you craft the use case and the experience. So we as a company steer totally clear away from applications of surveillance or lie detection or security where, where people may not know that the data is being recorded. And there's also like a little value that they get in return. They're not the beneficiaries really of, of, of that use case. Whereas, you know, envision an online learning environment where, you know, Adam, my son, who's 11, can can, you know, can share his level of emotional engagement just the way he would have if he were in class, right? And the teacher can leverage that information to figure out that, oh my God, he totally did not get the math class today, or he was totally like engaged in social studies and maybe she can build on that. I feel like that's very powerful um, and because we have to figure out a way to create these shared experiences online. Otherwise, we're connecting, but it's an illusion of a connection. It's not a real connection, and that's my concern. So I, so to kind of summarize it, I, I do worry about privacy too. I think we have to prioritize it, but it's about how do we craft the user experience and what value are you as a user, as a consumer, getting in return for sharing this super powerful and personal information. If you'd have had a technology like Affectiva as your marriage was unraveling, do you think it would have saved the marriage? I I often wonder about that. I I, I um I wonder if we had record not recordings, but you know, if I had these metrics, you know, if because you know, we had a long we had a 5-year virtual kind of long distance relation while well, we of course saw each other during these 5 years obviously, but um, but for the most part, I didn't really have a window into how well was feeling. And I, I just wonder if, it, you know, and he's on his device a lot and I'm on my device a lot. So imagine if his Siri, for example, or his version of Amazon Alexa, whatever, was tracking all of this information and it could say, of course, with his permission, you know, he's been feeling really down this week or he feels really lonely or disconnected or detached like maybe i maybe maybe i could have taken action sooner or at least start a started a conversation so i think about that a lot and and i think it's super timely in in this global pandemic because we have been catapulted into this universe where we are interacting with our teams and our colleagues and our clients online we are learning online. We're interacting with our doctors via telehealth platforms online. We're dating online, right? So 
it's and I, I think this we have we do really need to think about how do we create these empathetic shared experiences. Um, and and I and I think technology is part of the solution. It has to be. Where are we, Rana, in the history of facial tech, facial recognition technology? Um, the Chinese now are using it as a way of um, enforcing political orthodoxy and persecuting minorities and dissent. Are we at the early stage of, of this facial recognition technology? It's still not mature, is it? We are in the early stages of it. It's come a long way in the last few years, um, but we still have a lot of work to do in terms of mitigating data and algorithmic bias and incre- increasing the robustness and accuracy of these algorithms. Um, but we also have a lot of work to do in terms of deciding and enforcing what I call thoughtful regulation. I believe strongly that we do need legislation and regulation around how and where we can deploy these technologies. Um, And I also believe equally strongly that it's the technologists and the AI innovators that have to be at the forefront of shaping that um, and, and working with you know, civil liberty organizations and legislators to define that. I don't think we should take a back seat and wait for it to happen. I think we should really be on the forefront for advocating for this thoughtful regulation. Finally, Rana, I think one of the joys we all have in terms of reading is the books don't watch us in contrast to our (laughs) smartphones or computers. I hope that always remains the case. Uh, I know uh, as as a writer, you also um, are a keen reader uh, could you give people uh, one book that they might look at, which uh, has, has given meaning and uh, to your life, uh, 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 a book that you would suggest people should read during the pandemic? Yes, um, I would highly, highly recommend uh, "The Obstacle Is the Way" by Ryan Holiday. Um, it's an easy read, um, but I also think it's so timely, and the thesis of the book. Uh, is that, you know, we will all face a variety of obstacles in our life. This global pandemic is absolutely one of them. And you have a choice when you face an obstacle. You either just give into it or you find a way to get through it, up below it, underneath it, you know, to its side, but figure a way out. And and I just truly believe that, you know, this this we will emerge out of this pandemic stronger and better, um, even though it's really hard. So I would highly recommend the book. It's awesome. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.